Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We fail every time because we are weak and frail, but Father, you are strong and powerful. And it's only through the blood and death of your son, Jesus Christ, that we have anything. And so, Father, we stand this morning in the power of Christ alone. So, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for bearing God's wrath in our place. Thank you for being the sacrifice of atonement that we could be forgiven, that we could have new life, that we could have hope, that you forgive all of our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for rising again from the grave and being alive, that you are the living Christ, full of grace and truth. Thank you that you're coming back, Jesus, to take us home. We love you, Lord. And now during this moment, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and do what no man can do. And Holy Spirit, that is bring your word to life, penetrate hearts, convict, bring about transformation. Holy Spirit, only you can do that. I cannot. So I trust in you in this moment, Holy Spirit, to come and and do a work for the glory of Christ. And we pray this in his beautiful name, the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Children, if you are in fifth grade and on down you may leave now to go to kids on worship fifth graders and on down as they're working on our christmas musical the rest of you can open your bibles to hebrews chapter 11 hebrews chapter 11 I don't necessarily want to see a show of hands, but maybe you don't even know who this person is. But has anybody ever heard of a man named Christian Sperling? Anybody? Some, some of you are raising your hands. Has anybody ever heard of the Loch Ness Monster? Anybody ever seen the Loch Ness Monster? Okay, don't raise your hands because we'll have to talk after Samuel's seen it. Okay. How many of you have ever seen that fuzzy black and white photo of the Loch Ness Monster? Okay. Christian Sperling is the one that took the picture of the Loch Ness Monster. In 1934, it launched a, a frenzy of um, all this weird stuff, of believing that there, there may be a Loch Ness Monster out there. But it wasn't until 1995, on his deathbed, that Christian Sperling admitted that it was a hoax. It wasn't real. And it's amazing what people will often say on their deathbeds. There's rumors that Charles Darwin actually renounced his theory of evolution on his deathbed and claimed faith in Christ. Now, we don't really know because we weren't there. There's some stories that say, his family members say, no, that never happened. Other people say it did. So we may never know what Charles Darwin did at the end of his life. But it's, it's, it's interesting what people will say on their deathbeds. Voltaire, he was the most influential atheist in France during the 1700s. This is what he said. I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated President Lincoln, said this. Useless, useless, the terrors before me. I'm not sure if you're familiar with who Thomas Paine is. He was in, during the Revolutionary War, Thomas Paine wrote a bunch of pamphlets. He was the atheist of our age during the Revolutionary War. Uh, He wrote Common Sense. 
In seminary, I had to read his book, The Age of Reason, which is a defense of atheism, an attack on Christianity. At the end of his life, it was rumored that he said these words, O Lord, help me, Christ, help me, for I am on the edge of hell here alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. What about Napoleon Bonaparte, the famous French emperor who wanted to conquer the known world at the time? His dying words are recorded as this, What an abyss between my deep misery and the eternal kingdom of Christ. These are people that died without knowing who Jesus Christ was. Very sad. But for those who are Christians who are believers that reach that age of death or that point of death, oftentimes in the face of death, what we truly believe often comes out. There seems to be an honesty at the time of death. When you're facing imminent death, all pretensions, all game playing, all those things seem to just go by the wayside and you really find out what truly motivates a person, what's really in their heart, where they really find hope. You see, death is the final enemy and what we truly believe comes out at death. Sometimes our greatest theology comes out when we're facing death. What do we truly believe about God? What do we believe about heaven? What do we believe about his wonderful promises? And so we come to our text this morning in Hebrews. And we've been looking at the man Abraham over the past few weeks. A a man who was called by God to leave, to go, to obey immediately. A man who, as we looked at last week, was willing to sacrifice his very own son for the glory of Christ. A man who, who put everything on the line to follow his God. A man of extreme faith. And so this morning we're going to actually turn to his son Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We'll turn our attention to his son. And I hope as you've been going through Hebrews over the past few weeks, it's whetted your appetite to go back and read these stories in the Old Testament. You go back in Genesis and you read these amazing stories of these men who had amazing faith. And I just pray that maybe during this week you you go back and read these stories in Genesis to find out what really happened in all their dramatic detail. So we get to Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses just 20 this morning, but I'm going to read 20 through 22. Next week we're going to look at um, Jacob and Joseph. For today we're just going to look at Isaac. But let's read together Hebrews 11, 20 through 22. By faith. Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, if you're familiar with these stories in Genesis, you might find it pretty odd that the writer of Hebrews would focus on these stories at the end of these men's lives. I mean, it's kind of strange here that that these are the stories to talk about Isaac, to talk about Jacob, to talk about Joseph. Why would the writer choose these strange stories? I mean, we've been looking at these portraits of these men in in Hebrews who've had great faith, and, and he chooses these stories. Now think about it for a moment. What was Isaac's greatest moment? Probably what we saw last week being willing to go up Mount Moriah and be bound by his father and, 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 and be sacrificed by his own dad on the mountain. I mean, that was Isaac's moment of extreme faith. Why, why is that not included here? Or think about Jacob. I mean, Jacob had that fateful night where he wrestled with the angel of God. And, and God came and, 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 and wrenched his hip socket out of joint and he walked with a limp and, and his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. That seems like that would be the great moment of faith in the life of Jacob. Or what about Joseph? 
lot of moments in the life of Joseph. Was it his 13 years in prison? Was it the evil plot of his brothers to sell him into slavery? Was it his, his escape from sexual temptation with Potiphar's wife? Was it the idea of uh, forgiving his brothers at the end of his life? I mean, why aren't these recorded here in Hebrews chapter 11? Why, why do we have just these things here? We have to ask the question, why did the writer focus on these events in the life of these men? Well, we see three similarities between these men. What the writer of Hebrews focuses on is what these men did by faith at the end of their lives, when they were facing death. When death was at their door, what did these men do? It was the apex of their sanctification. How did they respond to God at the very end of their lives? They persevered to the end. And we have to ask the question, well, what did these men do at the end of their lives? What did these men do when they faced death? What was on their heart? What was on their mind? What act of faith did these men do when they came to the end of their journey with God? Because oftentimes what you do at the end of your life, what you do when you face death, often shows where your heart truly is. So for this morning, we're just going to look at Isaac's faith. One verse. And here's the big picture for this morning that we find out about Isaac. And it may not be readily um, apparent from this text We're going to have to go back to Genesis to see it unfold. But here's the issue. Authentic faith, authentic faith understands and submits to God's sovereign plan and realizes it cannot be thwarted. You cannot stop or frustrate the sovereign purposes of a powerful and holy God. You cannot frustrate the purposes of God. Now let's look at this text here in Hebrews. One verse, chapter 11, verse 20. By faith... Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And you look at that and say, well, big deal. What what does this mean? Who cares? Well, you have to understand something. Look at the order of the blessing. Who does he bless first? Jacob and then Esau. And you may be asked, well, what's the big deal about blessing Jacob first and then Esau second? Well, Jacob was the second-born child. And if you know anything about the conventions of that culture, it was the cultural norm for the firstborn son to be the one that got the blessing, the firstborn to get the inheritance, the firstborn to have all the attention um, focused upon the firstborn. For example, um, when my parents were doing their will and their estate, uh, they've given everything over to to me to be the executor of that will, Uh, not my younger brother, because in our culture, we still kind of understand that the firstborn son is usually the one that has some influence. But that's not what God had intended from the very beginning. God makes it very clear from the very beginning how he's going to do things. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back to Genesis and we're going to see the story unfold. So turn back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 25, and let's see God's intention from the very beginning because God makes it very clear what he's going to do. God makes it very clear what the order of things is going to to be. God, God is not hiding anything here. He announces something to Isaac and Rebekah before the two boys are even born. So let's look at Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 23. God is speaking to Rebekah, the mom, Isaac's wife, in Genesis 25, 23. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, 
all his body like a hairy cloak. Kind of weird. I think of Elmo when I read that. I don't know why. So they called his name, that's the uninspired, they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, God in his sovereignty is going to reverse the order. What does he announce to Isaac and Rebekah? I'm switching the order. I'm going to put my blessing upon Jacob, the secondborn. The older shall serve the younger. So God's determination from the very beginning was that Jacob would be the son of the promise. Jacob would be the one through whom the line would go. It would not be Esau. This was announced to both Isaac and Rebekah before they were even born. God made it very clear. As a matter of fact, Paul writes it this way. In Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 12, Paul says, And not only so... But when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. So Paul clearly says here, God's sovereign purposes were going to stand before they were even born. Jacob is going to be the son of the promise. God would do something for Jacob that he's not going to do for Esau. And this was announced from the very beginning. It was God's sovereign plan. So let's all ask a question. If God has already determined that something's going to happen, if God and his sovereign purposes has said, this is the way it's going to be, do you think we as humans can somehow frustrate God's purposes? Do you think somehow we can go against what God has determined to happen? Now, before I answer that, let me just give you some scriptures and let the scriptures answer this question for us. Psalm 33, 8 through 11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Or how about Isaiah 14, 27? For the Lord of hosts is purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Or how about Isaiah 46, 9 through 10? Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Now, what do these scriptures teach us about the absolute sovereignty of God? He's going to do what he wants. Nothing can stop the plans of a sovereign God who's determined to accomplish his will. And what we're going to see here is one dysfunctional family who tries to thwart God's plan. Now, if you think Gossip Girl, 90210, Days of Our Lives are pretty dysfunctional, a soap opera writer on their best day cannot come up with what this family does in Genesis chapter 27. So let's look at the life of this dysfunctional family unfold before us, okay? Genesis 27. We're going to see the most dysfunctional family in the Bible. So if you think your family's dysfunctional, have heart. There's one that was from the very beginning, and we can learn something from them. Okay, 
Genesis 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the days of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat it, that my soul may bless you before I die. What's Isaac doing from the very beginning here? He is going against God's predetermined plan that Jacob would be the son of the promise. He wants to bless who? Esau the older brother. Now, did he not get the the newsflash from God? Did he not get the message? Did he just not hear what God said? No, I think Isaac knew God's original plan, but he was going against it anyway. Now, notice what the text says. His eyes were dim. Isaac's going blind. Not just physically, but what? Spiritually. He's not seeing things the way he needs to see. See, he's trying to frustrate God's plan. He's trying to overturn God's plan. He's like, God, I know that Esau was supposed to serve Jacob. Jacob's the chosen one, but I'm going to go against your plan, and I'm going to bless Esau instead. So Isaac, from the very beginning, says, God, I don't care what you said. I'm going to do my own thing. I think I've got the power within myself to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. So let's see how this dysfunctional family unfolds. Just Genesis 27, verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Okay, so she's the eavesdropping wife. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for the game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock, bring me two young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father! And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How was it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Okay. What happens here? You see the story unfold, right? 
Rebecca eavesdropping. She has this plan. Let's deceive dad. Jacob, you're supposed to really get the blessing. Your dad's not obeying it. Let's go fool your dad. So she does this whole um, big behind the scenes, the, the drama queen mom trying to manipulate situations with her mama's boy. Remember, Jacob's a mama's boy. Esau's a man's man. So she does this whole goat skin thing and you've got the, the mother pulling the scenes, the strings behind the scenes. What's Jacob's name? His name means deceiver. And so we see the story unfold, the deception. What does Isaac do? Isaac's been fooled. He blesses who? Jacob instead of Esau. Who had he intended to want to bless? Esau. So what happens next? Older brother comes back. It's interesting the way the story unfolds. Turn to verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out, I mean, you can't have written a better script, he'd scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I've blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Notice the response of Isaac when he knows he's been fooled. What does verse 33 say? He what? He wept violently. It's almost as if Isaac went into convulsions is what the original Hebrew says there. Now, was he, was he ticked off at Jacob? Probably, we don't know. Was he scared of Esau? Maybe. But here's what I believe. Isaac trembled violently. It was in that moment that he realized he had gone against the sovereign purposes of God and God had beat him in his own game. God had won. In that one moment, he understood that he had tried to overpower the sovereign purposes of an almighty God, and he was no longer in control, and he realized what he had done. And isn't this what always happens in the end? Does God always get his way? When we think we're moving things along in our power, when we think that we're forging ahead, when we think that we're making our way for ourselves, in the end, a sovereign God cannot be stopped. And here's a newsflash for us as believers. Sometimes we don't want to hear this. God doesn't always do things the way we think he should do them. He may do things differently than the way we want things to be done. He may be orchestrating events sovereignly in a way that is for his good pleasure, his good purpose. He's the master potter shaping us into the image of Christ Jesus, his son. And he may not always do things the way that we want him to do. And so as you grow in your faith, a sign of Christian maturity is to submit yourself to the sovereign purposes of God and realize that God's ways are not our ways. And God sometimes does things mysteriously, sovereignly. And and at the end of the day, we are the ones that are not in the driver's seat. 
God is the one who is in control. We, we echo the words of Job. What did Job say at the, end of, at the end of his journey with God? I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be what? Thwarted. No plan of God's can be thwarted. God cannot be stopped. God's purposes will always prevail. Now, what I find interesting in this story is that God gets his way, but we see the sinful actions of human beings being played out here. Okay, can we excuse the actions of Jacob and Rebekah? No. They are sinful creatures who by their own free will did sinful actions, and they will be held accountable for what they did. They, they, they were trying to help God out. They wanted to move things along. They, they felt like they needed to give a, a boost for God. We know that Jacob is the son of the promise. Let's just kind of move things. God, you need our help, so let us help you. Let's help you along here. Esau was sinful. He's like, I'm not going to do what God said. I'm going to bless Esau. And here's the question. Does God need any help, especially from sinners doing sinful actions? It always backfires. When you try to help God along through rebellion, through sin, through doing things in your way, it always backfires. So with all of the sinful behavior going on, here's, here's the question I've been asking all week. I mean, this is pretty dysfunctional. Why in the world is Isaac elevated as this man who had amazing faith? Because Hebrews says, by faith, this is the hall of faith, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. That's what it's said about him. Why in the world would he be such a great man of faith? Well, I think it's this. At the end of his life, he came to the realization that he tried to overthrow God's predetermined plan and he knew that he could not. As an old man, he finally surrenders to the fact that God is sovereign and God's purposes and plans cannot be thwarted by humans. He finally learns his lesson. He realizes that he surrenders to the fact that God is a sovereign God. And notice what he does. He learns his lesson. Now, when, when Esau comes in and he finds out that he's done the wrong thing, he's been tricked, does he go back and renege? Does he say, uh-oh, let's do a do-over. Sorry, Esau, your brother tricked me. Let's do a do-over. Does Isaac do that? Does Isaac say, man, we gotta, let, let's try this all again. No, he says what's done is done because this is what was supposed to be done from the very beginning. I'm not revoking. I'm not doing a do-over. Jacob is the one being blessed because this was God's sovereign plan from the very beginning. He has a settled conviction at this point that this was God's plan. I tried to thwart that plan and God will ultimately prevail. It's, it's almost what Proverbs 19.21 says. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now, go to chapter 28. This is very, very interesting. What just happened? Isaac was cheated. Isaac was fooled. Isaac what? Blindly and unknowingly blessed Jacob. In chapter 28, he's going to do, with full conscious awareness of what he's doing, what he should have done in the first place. Notice what verse 28 says, or chapter 28, verse 1 through 4. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you 
and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of people. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land, your sojourners, that God gave to Abraham. What does Isaac do here? He does knowingly what happened unknowingly earlier. He, this time, says, Jacob, you are going to be blessed because this was God's sovereign plan and you are going to receive the blessing of Abraham. The covenant blessing of Abraham is going to pass on to you. Now, here's the interesting thing about this story. Evil, sin, manipulation, all of these things happening, but in the, win- in the end, who wins? God. And this is a hard thing for some of us to understand, but sometimes... God will use the most evil of human actions to accomplish his purposes. Think about the cross for a moment. It's most clearly demonstrated in the cross. Let me ask you a question. Who killed Jesus? Well, you may say, well, the Jews. The Jews killed Jesus. It was the kangaroo court. It was the the Pharisees. It was the scribes. It was the religious leaders. They were the ones that killed Jesus. Or you may say, well, no, actually it was the Romans. The Romans killed Jesus because the Romans were the ones that actually physically nailed Jesus to the cross. It was the Roman soldiers who killed Jesus. Or you may say, well, you know what? It was actually Judas. Judas killed Jesus because if, if Judas hadn't betrayed Jesus with a kiss, this would have never happened. Let's lay, let's lay the blame at Judas's feet. Or you may say, well, no, actually in the end it's Pilate. Pilate killed Jesus because ultimately Pilate was the one that, that, that gave the death sentence. And in a way, you are accurate. All of those men had a part in killing Jesus. But ultimately, who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? We lay it solely at the feet of God the Father. Now, if you go back and read Acts, the very first Christian sermon by Peter you realize that it was God's plan from the very beginning for Jesus to die. This Jesus, Acts 2 says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now you see both human responsibility, God's sovereignty. It was God's predetermined plan, but you killed him. So who killed him? Both. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod. Okay, who who put Jesus to death? Herod? Okay, yes. Pontius Pilate? Yes. Along with the Gentiles? Yes. And the people of Israel? Yes. So you've got Herod, you've got Pilate, you've got the Gentiles, you've got the Israelites. They put Jesus to death. But notice what it says here in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had what? Predestined to take place. So... Evil happens because humans with their free will choices do evil things. And they will be accountable for those evil things. But God can take and use the evil that humans do to accomplish his purposes and win in the end. And let me just ask you a question. What glorifies God the most? The cross. The most cruel act of treachery against a sinless, perfect, spotless lamb was perpetrated by men who were evil, but ultimately it was what? God's plan. The cross demonstrates what glorifies God the most. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. It was God's predetermined plan 
that all of our sin would be placed upon Jesus in our place as a sacrifice. And what God had determined from eternity past will be accomplished. Even in the midst of sinful actions, God will always win in the end. And that's what we see here in the life of Isaac. He realized at the end of his life that no plan of God's could be thwarted, no plan of God's could be, could be stopped. He surrendered himself to the fact that God's ways are not our ways, and God will accomplish all of his will. Think about the cross for a moment. When we think about the Lord's Supper this morning, we think about the cross, all the things that happened there. The wrath of God came barreling down upon Jesus in our place. The, the nails, the, the, the nails in his, his hands and his feet, the, 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 the crown of thorns, the cat of nine tails, all the suffering that Jesus went through on the cross. And you think about what message comes from Acts. Do you realize that when Peter finished up that message, that first Christian sermon, here's what, here's what Peter said. Okay, this is the least seeker-sensitive message you're ever going to hear, okay? Out of the mouth of an apostle to people that had killed Jesus. Here's what he said. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That would be us. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. When the message of Jesus Christ is preached, when the death, burial, and message of Jesus Christ and all of his glory is preached, when Christ crucified is preached, the appropriate answer is, what must I do? They were cut to the heart. And what does Peter say? Repent. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And there's a promise that happens when you, for, when you ask Christ to forgive you, when you repent of your sins. Peter says there's a promise. You will receive the forgiveness of all your sins and you will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit to come live inside you. The very Spirit of God will come and indwell you. And he says this message is to all whom God is calling to himself. So here's the question for this morning. Is God calling you? Is the very God of the universe this morning in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ calling to your heart? And is God coming to your heart and saying, you killed my son? And are you cut to the heart and say, what must I do? Are you being summonsed? I spent a couple weeks ago with Artaxerti, our friend, and he reminded me of something. He said, the invitation to accept Jesus Christ is not an invitation. An invitation is something that you can politely decline like an invitation to a party. No, the message of the gospel is a summons from the king of the universe. And to disobey and to not respond means that you defy the king. So God may be calling you this morning. God may be summonsing you this morning. And so let me just give you a bit of friendly advice. When the king of the universe calls you, give up. Surrender. Don't fight the sovereign purposes of an almighty God who cannot be overthrown. God is calling you this morning to himself. If God is irresistibly drawing you to himself this morning, the best thing you can do is to raise the white flag and say, Jesus, I give up. I come to you. And by the way, Christians, 
aren't you thankful that we serve this type of God? Aren't you thankful that we serve a God who's in control? A God who's on his throne. A God who does all things for his glory. A God who can be absolutely trusted. A God who's absolutely sovereign. And a God who has sent Jesus Christ to die for sinners like you and me. So as we think about the Lord's Supper this morning, the scripture is very clear. God is calling all of us to trust in this son, Jesus Christ. Have you answered the call? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I'm not going to infringe upon your time this morning to talk directly to Jesus. So we're just going to have an open time for you just to go to the Lord this morning and talk directly to your Savior. And for some of you, it may be the very first time that you talk to the Savior. And your answer is, yes, Lord, I repent, I trust, I turn, I accept your gift of forgiveness. I believe in you. For others, it may be just an opportunity to submit yourself to the sovereign purposes of God. Whatever God's calling you to do this morning in light of the Lord's Supper, spend some time in worship talking directly to your Lord. Father, during this moment, would you prepare us to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I want to give you just a few moments for examination, a time of confessing sin, a time of asking the Lord to cleanse your heart, claiming the promise from 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So let's just spend a few moments in an attitude of confession and examination and preparing to take the Lord's Supper this morning.
Father, it's our prayer this morning that we would be like those people that heard Peter's message and we are cut to the heart. I mean, Lord, who couldn't be cut to the heart when we hear about the death of Jesus? The blood of Jesus being shed for us. The innocent became guilty so that the guilty could become innocent. Jesus, you bore all of God's anger against sin in our place. You substituted yourself in our place. We do not deserve the love that you give, but you give it to us freely. And so this morning as we come to the Lord's table, we want to celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ. We want to celebrate what you've done, Jesus. So thank you for your body and blood being broken for us. And even as the song in the background's playing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. May we rest in your deep, deep love for us, Lord. But your love is deep. Lord, we don't even begin to understand how deep your love is for us. Help us look to you this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As our men come forward this morning to help prepare the elements, I just want to explain a little bit of how we do the Lord's Supper. We um, have two cups.